It's March 20th, 2019. This is Acacia Thompson for the Greenpoint Oral History Project for Brooklyn Public Library's Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here in Williamsburg with Stephanie Thayer. Hi, Stephanie. Hi. So, Stephanie, how did you first get involved in environmental activism in Williamsburg? Um, I started, I, well, I was with the Dean campaign, and um, when he didn't win the presidency, he had encouraged people to go back locally and um, and get involved and I took that to heart um, also when I came back uh, Greenline was looking for somebody is that mine or yours sorry about that um, Greenline was looking for somebody to write some articles and uh, Jenya had asked that I go and look into a particular building development that was said to be uh, planned to be uh, 22, 24 stories, which at the time sounded just simply outrageous, given that 90% of the, 90 some up percent of the neighborhood was three-story buildings. Um, so I reported on that, and she asked me to report on something with uh, the planning stages of the state park, and I reported on that. But, uh, <laughs> but in hearing about these things, you know, I'm now a Parks Department employee, and then I got sucked into the whole thing about the development, and and the construction, um, and so I was finding that it was difficult for me to just simply report on something. I felt that I needed to jump in and help do what I can about the problem, so that's how I got involved. Um, I started also uh, as a volunteer for NAG, doing you know the petitioning and handing out flyers on the street corners. I eventually became a board member and then an executive committee member during the rezoning, um, and because of also what I was doing with that one particular development when, and that particular development was sort of like the harbinger of all to come. We had no idea that the rezoning was happening. Um, and what we also didn't know is that while they were changing the zoning on the waterfront from manufacturing to residential and sort of high, you know, high rise residential, in the inland they were down zoning. So, inland, you know, away from the water, you had more rights as, as a developer um, under the existing zoning. So there was this mad rush to, um, to get your foundation poured, to get grandfathered, to get vested before the zoning changes happened um, with these sort of small developers. And there was an awful lot of, um, there was an awful lot of cutting corners. There was an awful lot of problems we had. Um, so with this particular development, I think I mentioned um, they didn't have their their excavation plans reviewed by the MTA. They ended up cutting into the subway tunnel. They um, <laughs> they um, they ended up cracking the foundation of a nearby building. And, and in those days, you called the DOB to say, you know, these guys they cracked my foundation. And DOB would show up and oh, thank you very much for letting us know that you're in an unsafe building and now you're evacuated. So there were people, you know, there were neighborhood people who were living in their cars. There was an older woman from Diamond Street who was, you know, put in a nursing home when her, when her, when nine families were evacuated out of that building. Um, we had had, I don't know, did I mention there was like a crane on this one particular development that was hitting the next door building. We had, um, we just had a, uh, we had a, a plethora of, of, um, of, of problems. And as 
as we were going through this with that one development, then other people started calling and saying that they were having these problems. So NAG developed a task force, the construction watchdog project. I mean, and Peter probably said the same thing. We, this neighborhood was not against development. They were just looking for contextual development. They were looking for safety as well. Um, you know, we shouldn't have to be worried about being, you know, forced out of our homes um, so that a developer can beat the clock. Um, but enough, enough about all of, all of that. I think that the more significant role that I played aside from NAG and the executive committee, uh, oh, one other little thing. Um, I was also, somebody said that all of these groups overlapped. I uh, was a supporting person with uh, Ward Dennis who had formed a group to, in uh, his group, WGPA, that was formed to landmark certain buildings or look into landmarking. Did Port talk about that at all? So, because it was like wrecking balls were just ripping through every block of the neighborhood. And he, as a historic preservationist, wanted to preserve some things. We were successful with uh, preserving some of Domino and we and others also were successful in preserving McCarran Park Pool um, in its form. But anyway, I, um, I think the more significant role that I played was really post rezoning. I became the North Brooklyn administrator. It was the first administrator that we had for parks in the neighborhood. And also I was executive director of a conservancy that was formed to help, um, help our parks. Um, when I first came on after, after the rezoning, it wasn't immediately after the rezoning, but when I first came on, um, about maybe it was maybe a year or two after the rezoning, from a neighborhood perspective, it seemed like nothing was happening. Um, from from a city perspective, I I understand I understand now what was going on, but um, from a city perspective, you know, you had EDC doing Transmitter Park, and you had DDC doing Manhattan Avenue Kayak, and you had private developers here. And, or you had, uh, you know, Parks Department Capital, but doing doing that, and so you know, each one of these agencies or departments might be behind on this particular project, but the, standing here as a neighborhood, it wasn't one project. It was like the entire neighborhood. We're, we don't have one single blade of grass added post rezoning. Um, so with Butchwick Inlet. Um, Hopefully, whoever's listening to this 10 years later, uh, it's all built and, and, and beautiful. But Bushwick Inlet, for the, the first block of it from, from 9th to 10th, was acquired, designed, bid out, and went into construction during my tenure. I think one thing that was really significant about that is that it was acquired at a purchase price of something like $75 million. Um, and what was significant about this is that pre-rezoning, they did budgets about what it would cost to um, to purchase this land. And now look at it, it was massively contaminated, all of Bushwick Inlet, and it was uh, zoned for manufacturing, heavy industrial use, and no one's doing heavy industrial use on, um, in, or it's not really happening in these cities anymore. So the city came out and, and valued, I think, the land at Bushwick Inlet, Inlet at something like two million or five million, decasted, and ended up paying seventy-five million. So that's significant because the seventy-five million really set a precedent. Um, it set a difficult precedent. 
um, moving upwards, 50 Kent, which is between 11th and 12th Street, was already owned by the city. It was owned by, it was being used by sanitation. Um, it's hard to imagine that this is going to be our waterfront park. It used to be a sanitation depot. But um, that was owned by the city, so it was a little bit easier. But again, it was the site of what had been, it was massively contaminated. So under my tenure, we started doing the investigation for what the remediation was going to take. Um, Bayside Fuel, excuse me, was a is a huge lot uh, between 12th and 13th. So, you know, we had really already busted the budget. And at the time, with all of the commitments that were made prior to the rezoning, post rezoning, this neighborhood had like 500 million in capital projects that were in acquisition or development, which is a huge percentage of Park's capital budget for five years. I mean, it was massive. Um, so, <laughs> so the idea of having to lay out another 75 million on yet another piece of property was just incomprehensible. Um, but as a resident, you know, I felt an obligation to do so. And um, I, I, brought, I brought Commissioner Benepe to the neighborhood to sit down at Kasha's diner with, you know, 15, 20, 20 activists in the neighborhood. Um, I think he was really charmed by the activists in the neighborhood. His mother had been Polish and he used to buy pierogies in Greenpoint. And so, you know, he met people like Valdemar from NAG, Christine Holovats, and, and when he left, um, I sat at a meeting with the mayor's office, at the, a deputy mayor who said, you know, we can't, we can't afford to do this. And uh, Commissioner Benefi said, look, if, if you can't afford not to do this because every rezoning that you try to do after this, the whole neighborhood will just say, you know, they won't abide by their promises. Don't support it. They don't keep their promises. Um, and with that, we actually entered into an agreement with Bayside Fuel so that they were paid over the course of five years. They were paid a little bit every year until it was acquired. So that was really, um, really, I mean, thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Benefe. I, th I think that that also points out something. Um, if there's a, if there's somebody out there also doing community activist work, I mean, we get sort of very myopic in looking at sort of the details of this and that. But ultimately, it's the city government that makes the decision and has to implement things, and it is critical to get anything done to having an advocate on your side within the government to make it happen. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think that we had that, like, for example, to the extent that we needed with the rezoning. Um, but anyway, but I think that, that Adrian Benepe, um, I thank him for that as a, as a resident. Um, city storage came about after me, and I'll just, uh, I'm sure that other people have said a lot about that. Uh, transmitter park when I came in, excuse me, sorry. Let me just turn this ringer off. Transmitter Park, when I came in, had been Meyer, had already been promised as a park, um, but it wasn't. It was um, mired in litigation with the neighbors 
Parks Department was using it to store, th at one point it was Central Communications, and then Parks Department was storing things there. It, it was mired for like seven years in litigation. And, and when I came in, I said, well, can't we at least open this temporarily? And um, I was told, oh, no, 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 it's too, it's too unsafe. And I'm like, wait a minute, if it's unsafe for the public, why are we letting my staff go, go in there? Um, and they said, well, you know, there's been an engineering study and it's falling into the river. And I said, let me see the engineering study. Not that I'm an engineer, but I read through it. And it basically said, look, over by the shoreline, it is collapsing into the river. And I later, you know, on the river, you could see it collapsing in. But there was a part that was really solid. And so I said, um, well, why don't we, you know, fence you know, fence off the part that's that's dangerous and at least let people into the part that they can be in because this is a neighborhood that's surrounded on two-thirds of it by water and yet we had so little waterfront access. I mean, we had we had Grand Ferry Park, which is about a block. I don't think the state park, I'm not even sure the state park was uh, around that. Anyway, um, so, so, you know, two-thirds of we were surrounded on two thirds of our side by water and yet there was maybe a couple of blocks where we could actually access it. I mean, even the roads to the waterfront were closed off. Um, you had industrial places that, I guess for their safety, they put chain link rolling gates up and they locked off the street ends. And um, the community board actually had tried to raise that as an issue. But anyway, getting back to transmitters. So I said, we need to, we need to open this to the public Ultimately, Adrian Benepe um, supported me in that, and we did that. And I'm glad that we did that because it was another two years before we even started construction. So better to have like this temporary place that wasn't, you know, wasn't all that it could be, but at least it was something. Um, so speaking of the, the street ends, um, the community board had raised the issue, but uh, weren't able to get these street ends reopened um, as part of as part of what was happening, um, because there were so many different agencies involved in all of this capital development, uh, the commissioner set up something so that I was meeting, I think like every two weeks or so with the mayor's office and all of the different agencies involved. So EDC and DDC and DOT and et cetera, et cetera, parks capital and this one and that one. And by raising the issue in that meeting, um, you know, the mayor's office understood, look, we might not have all the money that we need to get everything done, but this is a no cost thing just to enforce the rules that, you know, public roads should be public. So take down these gates and take down this chain link fence. Um, and, and we did, we got that reopened. Um, moving up the waterfront, there was Manhattan kayak launch, which too was stalled. It seemed to look like when it came in, it seemed to look like it was done and people were frustrated like why isn't it open it's it's done and when i looked into it it turned out that there was you know a, uh, a subcontractor of a subcontractor who wasn't paid what's basically a miscellaneous amount in, in a capital project something like i don't know say twenty thousand dollars and because of that he didn't do x so the next one could couldn't do y so we couldn't open it up but we got all that taken care of we opened it up um, another significant, I think one of the most significant projects during my tenure was the opening of McCarran Park Pool. 
you probably heard a lot about this. It had been closed during the financial crisis. Um, and of course, when there's a financial crisis, it's always the libraries and it's the parks that, um, that are the first to suffer. And uh, the financial crisis was so bad that they were having problems even picking up garbage at the time, sanitation. You know, the city went to the feds and there's famous headline where it said Ford to, I think it was Ford to New York City, drop dead. Um, but um, so, so McCarran Park Pool was closed. It went into disrepair, homeless, addicts. Actually, when we went to renovate it, the, um, the piping was just clogged with hypodermic needles. Um, so, but I don't know if they also told you that um, all of the pools were closed, all the WPA pools were closed. The city went back to reopen them and only in Williamsburg, people chained themselves to the gates to prevent the pool from being reopened. Do you hear that one? Yeah. Um, so if you talk to people now, they'll say, well, you know, it was unsafe and it pro and it, and it was unsafe because they didn't have, um, you know, they didn't have enough guards or didn't have enough lifeguards as funds were being cut. So it was in bad shape, but a lot of other people, I mean, leading up to the renovation, a lot of the older people that I talked to were quite frankly said, you know, Hey, we didn't want those kids from Bushwick being bussed in and uh, those kids from Bushwick being African-Americans in a neighborhood that was predominantly Polish, predominantly Italian. Um, and if you talk to the parks people who were around at the time, they, they said that it was a racial issue. So the neighborhood got what it, what it wanted, which was much of nothing for years. Uh, commissioner Julius Spiegel, who was Brooklyn commissioner, his actually, his uh, family survived through the Holocaust. So this whole, you know, discrimination didn't fly with him. And every single year he pushed, once it was closed, he pushed to still get funding to reopen it. Um, eventually he did, he succeeded. I think it was council member Fisher, but I'm not a thousand percent sure. At the time it was only $5 million, but that was enough to renovate it. But you know, what happened is you have this faction of the community saying, knock the whole thing down and create a soccer field. We had another faction of the community. This was all before my time, but I heard all about it. Another preserve every inch, another, you know, uh, knock half of it down. So, you know, if you're a politician and you're going to allocate millions of dollars and only to end up having, you know, two thirds of your constituency pissed off, you know, why, why bother? So again, there was no community consensus. Like the community has to have a consensus in order to get something done. So, um, so again, it didn't happen. So at the very end of Bloomberg's tenure, um, he allocated 50 million to make this happen. And, you know, I, <laughs> I'd like to say, you know, power to the people, but I actually, you know, community activism, et cetera. I actually think that a good part of this was just Dan Doctoroff biking by and saying, oh, we need places for this Olympics bid. And we could use this as a practice pool if it was renovated. And the bid fell through, but it's like, hey, you know, the Brooklyn commissioner has been fighting for this and it's a great idea. Why is this sitting underutilized like this? 
So, um, so I think the community at this point understood it's now or never. So we have to, everybody has to be a little bit flexible. No one's gonna get everything that they want, but hopefully everybody gets a little something of what they want. Um, and, um, you know, it went into, we had two neighborhood charrettes, so about 200 people showed up over two nights. Um, and um, yeah, it went into design, procurement, construction. I'm delighted to have been there for the opening. Um, yeah. Uh, a couple of other things at the same time. So the South Side had been, um, had felt that the North Side and Greenpoint were getting all of the attention. Of course, the rezoning was actually North Side and Greenpoint, but they felt that they were um, not getting what they deserved in terms of parks. So I applied for funding from uh, Borough President Marty Markowitz and received 400,000 to renovate Rodney Park North um, I also applied for funding from the state for Cooper Park and got 400000 We went to the council member with the plans about what we thought we should do with the 400000 And the council member was, why don't I have this? And what about that? And the commissioner, Brooklyn commissioner said, well, that's all great, but we only have 400000 So with that, I think that the council member turned around and added another $2 million to that, which allowed for substantial improvements for um, Cooper Park. Um, there were a couple of other smaller things. Um, the Conservancy, and thanks to Julia Morrow, built, up, built a temporary pop-up park on India Street. Um, we, we also, uh, the Conservancy funded a DOT study that led to demapping Union Street. So I see that it's now demapped. I think the next step for somebody to take is to uh, get the funding to knit those two pieces of the park together. And actually, I think that DOT leadership has changed now, and I think that they would also be more amenable to closing Driggs, which had been uh, studied at the time. And if you could really knit all of those pieces together, I think that that would, I think, you know, that would, that would give us more park space, but I think that would make for a great park. Um, but anyway, I'm digressing a little bit. Um, so, you know, while we were doing all of this, all of this capital work, we were also doing a lot of programming. And I think that uh, the concerts got a sort of disproportionate amount of attention. Um, I will say that we were, we were doing 60 events a summer, and of those, 10 were ticketed concerts, up to 10, maximum 10. And the money from those ticketed concerts subsidized the free events, the, the other 10 free shows and other free events as well as, um, well, I, so the concerts had been around before I came on board. The difference was at that time there wasn't a conservancy. So the money would just go into the general fund. So the money from these concerts could be used for like sanitation in Staten Island. It wasn't allocated back to our neighborhood, our parks. And so that was part of what the Conservancy could do. Oh, but so I started saying, we were doing 60 events. I think that the concerts got a disproportionate amount of attention. We were also doing children's crafts. We had author readings in partnership with Word Bookstore. We did yoga. We did Shakespeare in the park in Sternberg, actually on the kids' playground equipment for the kids. We had independent filmmakers from the neighborhood. Um, 
and we projected their films on Sternberg's handball courts because you know the guys couldn't afford a screen and I thought that was a great idea. We did a potluck, potluck slideshow, which was, uh, which was a group that a bunch of photographers would, um, would show their work and everybody brings a dish. And we actually did this in the pool. So it was like thousands of people looking at um, art photography. We, um, you know, we did, the other thing that we ended up doing too with all of this programming is when the pool went under renovation, we made it a lot less McCarran-centric. So for the first time, Sternberg and Cooper were getting some programming that that was otherwise sort of centered on, on McCarran. Um, I will say about the bands in the neighborhood, I really felt that it was part of what made Williamsburg, Williamsburg, part of, or it was part of just as, you know, the, the Polish contingent and in North Williamsburg and Greenpoint, the Latinos on the South side, the Italians on the East, you know, the artists were part of a second wave that made that and really brought a lot of interest to the neighborhood. Um, it was part of the soul of the neighborhood. And I really wanted to see it continue for that as well as, you know, as well as, um, as well as, as well as other reasons, as well as, you know, as, as well as the sort of financial reasons that, um, that, you know, it, it helped fund other improvements. And for example, the state park one year was supposed to close over, and this is crazy, I think it was like $20,000 that they didn't have funding of $20,000. So, you know, the, the concerts, we were able to put that money up so that the park didn't have to close. And that came from funding from the concerts. Um, I think, I think, wrapping wrapping this up um i will uh say i want to thank julia morrow who i'm sure no one has mentioned but she was my assistant and she was a ball of energy you know uh between the programming and between um between uh the the capital that we were doing we also had to do fundraising we also had to do um a host of other things from you know building a an email list that ended up being 10,000, building a Facebook following of what was 6,000 at the time, you know, just a host of other things. And, and uh, I couldn't have done it without her. And also uh, Sam Kinkin, who uh, nobody would know, but uh, he, he, at a time when the pool was considered to be unsafe for the public to do anything in it, he lived in the neighborhood. He was over sort of in the Roebling area um, and he came in and he took a, a look around. The Parks Department brought a whole bunch of promoters to look at the pool to say, what, what can you do with this? And everybody was like, it was like, you know, asking them to do a concert on the moon. It was just uh, strange and weird and absurd. But he was a local guy and he understood it. And he understood that locally we had bands living here. And, that, and he thought it would be really interesting. And he also worked for a major company, Live Nation, um, who had the resources to put up the 200,000 that was required so that bricks weren't falling on people's head as they walked in. And, um, you know, they, you know, since it's a corporate, they got a lot of flack at the time because it's a, you know, it's a corporate, um, you know, it's a big, large corporation, Life Nation. But, you know, the person behind that big it was a local resident who had vision and who actually taught me the industry, and I'm thankful for that. 
Um, and, you know, thankful for all of the people in the city agencies and, and the community groups that are way too many to, uh, <laughs> to name. Uh, and I'll say just a couple things in closing, and that is, you know, we're, we're all connected to each other. And, you know, whether that's, you know, my next door neighbors, whether it's my further neighbors in, in Greenpoint, we're all connected as well to the generations that came before us and what they left us and to the generations after us, the people who are listening to this. And sort of that community activism, I think, strengthens those bonds. And um, despite all of the fighting against the odds and everything, I, think, I still think it's, it's well, well worth it. And I'll also say that it, you know, getting involved with something that's larger than one's own self gives meaning to our lives and working towards that greater good and working towards things that will, you know, last beyond our lifetimes. Um, so thank you for giving me this opportunity to speak. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story with me, yeah. Stephanie. <laughs> All right.